0: Karni Mata Temple. Located in northwest India in the city of Deshnoki. Karni Mata is nicknamed the Temple of the Sacred Rats because that's what it is. Not only are countless hordes of rats left to run free in the temple, they are lavishly fed and they are devotedly protected by Hindu worshipers. The rats are venerated because they are believed to be reincarnated souls. People reincarnated as rats so that the gods can protect them along with the help of their worshipers. And so here is a temple in northwest India. A sacred place of worship that is crawling with vermin. As people kneel and pray... And leave their food offerings for the rats. The rats are scurrying around and climbing all over everything. So, do you want to go on a tour? <laughs> How many of you, if you were asked, would say, I'd, I'd like to see that? I mean, many of us, I think, would rather see it virtually or maybe just hear about it. And some of you, by look on your face, are saying, I wish you hadn't brought this up. But imagine this, we take it a step further. You travel to northwest India, and a Hindu couple that you meet asks you, will you go to our temple with us to worship? We will have a full course Indian meal in the temple with rats crawling all over us and eating our food with us. We will worship the goddess Durga, who was incarnated as Kani Marta in the 14th century, Then we will kneel and we will present food offerings to the rats. So bring some food with you uh, to the rats, to the gods, and, and we also want you to bring a lot of money so that you can lay down money to keep the temple going. Will you please worship in our temple with us? The very thought of supporting and participating in such warped and depraved worship, I think I'm safe to say, would be repulsive. rather than accept this hindus this hindu couple's invitation would we not rather seek to persuade them that there is a much better way to worship given the opportunity would we not call them to leave the temple and never return and so i think it is for those of us who have been born again through our faith in christ by trusting in the death of Jesus, to bear the punishment of my sin, by believing in the resurrection of Jesus and victory over sin and death, I'm delivered, so to speak, from the world's temple. Filled as it is with the vermin of moral debauchery, I've come to a new fellowship, to a new partnership. Now as believers, we have become the new temple of God. We have become the living temple in which God dwells by His Spirit. And now, as the new temple of God, it is as wrong for us to return to fellowship with the world as it would be to worship at Karni Mata. The only answer is to leave such a temple, to never return to fellowship with the world. We interact with the people of this world. But to fellowship with it, to partner with it, to find commonality and fellowship at a soul level. That's gone. That's past. We've moved to a new temple. So Paul writes to the Corinthian church, I invite you to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, along these very lines, and they live in a city where there are many pagan temples. I'm not sure if any of them worshipped rats, if they degenerated that far, but they worship many false gods. And there was much debauchery in the temple worship there at Corinth. And so we can learn as Paul communicates to this church of new believers in a very corrupt city where there were many temples in the worship of other gods and false ideas. The Corinthians had indeed been delivered from this world. They had been rescued by Christ and they had now been made into the new temple of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. These are untransformed lives. These are lives that play out according to the dictates of the temple of the world. But he says in verse 11, such were some of you. And the past tense there is critical. This is who you were at one time. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You've been brought out of that temple of debauchery and dirt and defilement. And you've been washed off and brought into the pristine temple of the living God. That's who you were. This is now who you are. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. In this second book that we have that has survived the writings of Paul to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and verse 3, he brings up this theme again uniquely. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts, on fleshly hearts. That is, the heart of stone has been replaced with a soft and tender heart. There's been a regeneration that's taken place. A new life that has been given to these new believers. Chapter 5 and verse 17 that leads to this classic statement that as He speaks of them and as He thinks of this new life that they've received, He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The new has come. They were now this new temple. In the Lord, because of who we are as believers in Christ, then Paul exhorts the Corinthians and the Spirit exhorts us, we should pursue separation from fellowship with this world. It's a fundamental truth that we embrace and understand that we should seek separation from fellowship with the world, not partner in that fellowship. In chapter 6 and verse 14, Paul launches into this unique section With this thesis statement, here's his point, verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Do not be unequally yoked. What does that mean? This draws upon the Old Covenant and the Mosaic Law. Deuteronomy 22 and verse 10 says, "...you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together." I'll tell you, there's a lot of things that miss us in the Mosaic Law, and this is an example of one of those things. What's wrong with that? I mean, it might look weird, and it may not work very well, but what's wrong with an ox and a donkey plowing together? Why does the law of God say don't do that? Well, the law of God said not to do a lot of things. In fact, we're violating one of the rules of the Mosaic Law right now, I would assume. Is there anybody here wearing clothing that has mixed materials? If you are, you're violating the Mosaic Law, which we're not under and we're safe to do that. But it, you couldn't wear clothing that had mixed materials. It had to be 100% cotton or nothing, I guess. But it, it, it had to be one material. Now, what's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing inherently morally evil about an ox and a donkey plowing together. But what God was doing was in a very visible, tangible way. He was explaining that there's certain things that don't go together. And what the Apostle Paul then finds from that law is something that's pointing really to a larger message and a a greater truth. And that's that there really is to be no communion between believers and unbelievers. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. It is this to which the law is ultimately pointing. And the Israelites, in the context of their day, use this concept of unequal yoking in particularly two areas. The first was marriage and the second was worship. And so for God's children, they were not to marry pagans and they were not to worship with pagans. They were to separate themselves from those two areas particularly, and they use this idea commonly, do not be unequally yoked with pagans, with unbelievers. Paul uses it here not merely of marriage and worship, although I think that what we would understand in the context is very important. But he uses it in a much broader way. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Who are unbelievers? Unbelievers are unbelievers. They're not believers. Some have used this verse widely to say that they are going to separate from other Christians. That's not the point here at all. He says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers unbelievers. That is someone who's separated from Christ. One commentator puts it this way, he speaks of unconverted Gentiles who inhabit the dark world of idolatry and immorality in such a city as Corinth, blinded people who are under the sway of the God of this world. Do not be unequally yoked with them. That's his his call here to the Corinthians. Now, at this point in the text, He's going to lay out five rhetorical questions. These are five questions that are intended to support this call to not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Verse 14 For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Clearly the answer to all of these is nothing. These are unequal things that are not to be mixed in some sense. And we'll have to work that out as we work through it. But let's take the questions in order very briefly as we focus on them righteousness and lawlessness have nothing to do with one another believers are called to a life of moral uprightness as they follow the example of Jesus Christ unbelievers are bound in the chains of moral darkness by nature they break god's laws and that's how they like it what fellowship there is there between these two orientations secondly what connection is there between light and darkness there is none They cannot work together. There are two distinct moral cultures. There's the culture of light. People who respond to the person and the work of Christ. There's the culture of darkness. People who respond to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, and do not see the beauty of Christ. Now these are described here in very stark, distinctive terms. There may be those who are coming to Christ and beginning to see that light. But overall and largely it's light and darkness and there's no fellowship there. There's no fellowship between Christ and Belial. That is between Christ and Satan. What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Where do we commune together at the deepest levels of our being? We don't. Think of the difference. The believer is one who values and honors the truth. The unbeliever is given to lie. The believer is giving to others and to God and understands that wealth is a stewardship from the Lord and seeks to give away and to accomplish in this life that which pleases the Lord compared to the unbeliever that is overrun by greed who wants to keep and to hold and to have what they can get in this temporal world. For the believer, there's sexual fidelity within the bond of marriage according to the law of God and according to His good purposes to us. But for the unbeliever, there's uncontrolled sexual gratification. Controlled in some ways, but simply to protect self. A pursuit against the law of God. For the believer, there's words of blessing that flow from their mouths seeking to build others up. For the unbeliever, there's slander and there's cursing. There's a different way of speech. For the believer, pure speech that builds up. For the unbeliever, corrupt speech that tears down. For the believer, there's obedience to God's will. For the unbeliever, there's self-serving lawlessness. For the believer, there's an eternal focus. I've been saved by Christ for another kingdom. For the unbeliever, a purely temporal focus. It's to get here and now what I can grasp because this is my world over which I rule. For the believer, there's this understanding, I'm forgiven by God with no fear of condemnation before the judge with whom I now am at peace. The unbeliever has no such concept. It is guilt, shame, rejection of God, His law, and His mercy. What do these two have to do with one another? As we read in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, there are these acts of unrighteousness and lawlessness, and that's who you were, he says to these Corinthians. But you've been changed from all of that. What portion does the believer and the unbeliever have in common? There's nothing there at a heart level. And then he comes at verse 16 to what is really the climactic statement. The way that the text is laid out indicates that this is he's really driving to this final question as the epitome of all that he's saying. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? The Greek word temple here refers to the temple proper where the glory of God resided behind the curtain in the inner sanctum. Not to the temple complex at large with all of its courts, but to this inner sanctum where the presence of God resided among His people. The temple in Israel was the most holy place. You remember the Shekinah glory, the glowing presence of God that was over the Ark of the Covenant behind that veil. This is the temple of Israel. You, he says, are now the temple of God. And There was one sure way to desecrate the temple of Israel and that was to bring idols into it. The temple was where Israel worshipped the living God, not dead idols. Lifeless idols in the temple were a direct affront to this one true and living God. But what was true then in the temple in Israel points to a deeper reality. While we are not to seek fellowship with the world, we are to live in fellowship as the temple of God with the Lord. And that follows from the middle of verse 16 and following. For we are the temple of the living God. I think there's a shift in the text here. Don't do this. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers, but understand this positively, we are the temple of the living God. When a person puts his or her faith in the death of Jesus to pay the penalty of sin, and in the resurrection of Jesus as victory over sin and death, that person is united by faith to Jesus Christ those who share this life-giving faith are called out of the world to form the church, which is the body of Christ. Now understand this. The temple was the place where God met with His people. His very presence was there. But now that Jesus Christ has fulfilled the ritual of the temple, it is Christ who brings us into the presence of God. It is Jesus who ushers us into that very inner sanctum through His blood. This atonement has been made for His people, and now we, as the body of Christ then, are that new and living temple. This new temple is indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. As the old temple in Israel was indwelt by the presence, the Shekinah glory of God, so this new living temple, the church, is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. God's presence is here. Paul said all this to the Corinthians earlier. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, he says this, Do you not know that you... Here the English kills us in these verses. The ESV helps us out in the footnote. But that is plural. Do you not know that you, plural, are God's temple and that God's temple dwells in you, plural? God's temple is holy and you, plural, are that temple. You are God's temple, He says to them. The Holy Spirit dwells within you. I think the idea there is individually as believers in Christ, but I think it's a corporate sense as well. He dwells within you as the church. You are now the new and living temple. not a dead temple. It's a living temple. And the Spirit of God dwells within us as a church. So putting this together, and setting this up is what will now follow. But we as the living temple of God think on this. Imagine you're invited to dine at the pristine palace of a great king. This palace is one of absolute luxury. Everything is immaculately prepared. Everything is perfectly clean. Everything is absolutely in its place. But all of that beauty and splendor is, is overwhelmed by the very presence of the King Himself. And In His presence there is warm company and fellowship. There's joy and laughter at this meal. There is wisdom that flows that changes you. And you're invited to go to this palace and to dine and fellowship with this king. Oh, and by the way, there's another invitation on your table. It's to the Karni Mata Temple. Where are you going to go? Leave the temple of the vermin, Paul says in a sense. We are the temple of the living God. And there is fellowship there with Him. Verse 16, As God said, I will make My dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be My people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. Paul is using here an allusion to the prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 52. Very interesting context there in Isaiah. Isaiah is prophesying to the captives in Babylon, looking ahead to that time, and he is saying to them, come back to the promised land. Leave Babylon. Now, Babylon, we have to understand, under captivity for the Israelites, it wasn't a perfect world by any means, but it was somewhat safe. You had a powerful king and army that was protecting you. Things were provided there. There was a measure of wealth that the Jews had developed in captivity in Babylon. And there was just the ease of life. Now there's this call to go across the Fertile Crescent all the way back to the Promised Land. To... I mean, will it survive? Can we even live there? There's no army. There's no great king. It's not been developed now for 70 years. Do we go back? And the prophet Isaiah speaking for God pictures God as if He's standing in the promised land with His arms open and says, leave, leave that place with its idolatries and its false securities and come to this promised land and I will welcome you. I will be among you. I will be your leader. I will be your rear guard as you travel. I will protect you. I will receive you. It's interesting, isn't it? Paul draws from that context and he says that's God's orientation to His new and living temple. Come out of the temple of this world. Come out of its fellowship and come to Me and I will receive you. You will be My people. I will be your God. I will dwell among you. Don't touch any unclean thing as you leave. What is that? In that context, don't bring any idols from Babylon back to Israel in our context, don't touch the unclean, polluting, vile things of this world. But come to Me. Walk into My presence. Fellowship with Me. I will be your God. You will be My people. Come to My temple. Come as My temple. Now at verse 18, it continues, but there's another allusion here, and this is not to Isaiah and the returning captives, but here to the Davidic covenant. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, he says, I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. It's interesting what is happening here as Paul puts this together. This new and living temple reflected in Israel's temple. This new exodus leaving the world as a reflection of Israel leaving Babylon or leaving Egypt. But here now, he's drawing on this covenant with David Where David is promised that his son, that God will accept his son, he will be my son, I will be his father, you as my people will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Now that we are in Christ, we are then, as the church, accepted as Jesus is, as the Son of God is accepted we now through christ and adoption become the sons and the daughters of the living god that is our heritage that is our call that is the wonder of our salvation in christ what a travesty then to deny our relationship with our heavenly father what a travesty to say no to his invitation as he stands at his palace and welcomes us to this fellowship in this pure hall of wonder and delight, and to turn our back on that and to go to this world and to its temple and to fellowship there. How wicked. How foolish. You will be My sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty, when you do not touch the unclean thing and come out from among them. Then coming to conclusion, and by the way, one of the worst chapter divisions there is in the Bible. It should not be here, but that's not under inspiration. That just was added later. But 7 1 is the conclusion of it all. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body. We're going to take these three parts, but here's the positive. Since we have these promises, cleanse. Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement then negatively, and then positively, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Notice this, having these promises. We're not called to separate from the world for no good reason. We're called to separate from the world in response to God's great and precious promises to us in Christ. The imperative, do this, verse 14, is based upon the indicative, the truth of the promises of God. I will be your God, you will be My people, I will go among you and I will protect you, and I will receive you as My own. It's those promises that motivate our obedience. It's this call from this Father who welcomes us into His palace to become His new and living temple. It's those promises that motivate us not to go to the temple of this godless world. So having these promises come out from among this godless world, do not be stained by its moral filth, and the Father Almighty will receive you. Negatively then, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. That is, any defilement outwardly or inwardly, let us cleanse ourselves from this defilement. Again, we see the allusion to Israel's ritual worship as rituals of cleanliness were practiced under the Old Covenant, now that the light of the New Covenant has dawned, that cleanliness, that ritual purification is to apply to our spirit, to our body, to give ourselves as a living sacrifice to the Lord, he would put it to the Romans. As a ritual cleanliness under the Old Covenant, so as the light of the New Covenant has dawned, we have a life of purity to Christ, in relationship to Christ. The Corinthian context, of course, there's rampant paganism. Now one of the prominent means of social connection in Corinth was you would be invited to the feast at a temple, the worship of a particular God. There's actually been uncovered these invitations. It just says, please know that you have been invited to dine with me at the temple of, and it's named there, to uh, in the presence of the God is named there. So for the Corinthian culture, that was a place where there were there were ceremonies that were held there, there were festivals, these idol shrines where these meals were were held. I mean, to be a Christian in Corinth, I mean, you could eat with in one another's Homes, but it was almost like you could never go to a restaurant. Because when you went to the temples where these meals were shared, there was no McDonald's there. There wasn't anything better than that there. You went to these, these shrines and you met with others there and communed with them there. And in some sense, you participated in the temple of demons. Now Paul has discuss this issue with the Corinthians but apparently there is still this temptation because this really would ostracize you socially these shared meals at these shrines and festivals and in these temples it was highly socially disruptive to reject these invitations time after time remember first Corinthians 10 that was read earlier What? Pagan sacrifice, says Paul, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. There's that same idea. Participants. I don't want you to join in on this worship. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? That's what's at issue here. Loyalty to the Christ who has saved us. Are we going to go to this vile temple and participate in this meal? We cannot do this. These new believers to eat a ritual meal at a pagan temple was an act of infidelity to Christ, and Paul says we cannot do this. So negatively cleanse yourself from every defilement of body and spirit, positively bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Some people have read this to say that we can come by one act in time to complete sanctification and perfection in this life, not at all the point. But we do continue to labor together as the body of Christ, striving to grow in holiness as God's temple. Did you hear that? And putting a little bit of a different twist on that that we mightn't typically hear. We understand that we, our bodies, are the temple of the living God. But I think in context here, it's not just me pursuing holiness. But we, as this new and living temple, the body of Christ, working together to pursue holiness. To bring holiness to completion in the fear of God with reverence to the Lord in loyalty to Him. Our God is a God of goodness and moral beauty and we are then to become the kind of temple in which the Holy Spirit dwells comfortably. You can only know your heart. And only so far. But as you look within your own heart, as you gather here in worship today, is the Spirit of God comfortable here? What do we bring? And we all bring sin. We all bring our own weaknesses to this assembly. But as a church, we should know that it is our priority, it is our task, it is our joy to help one another through the confession of sin and through the encouragement of one another to live righteous lives and to be cleansed as a temple, a temple in which the vermin of sin is constantly being chased out the door, not fed in the church. How do we view all of this? Instruction to a church in a pagan world where there are pagan shrines everywhere in the city. What we see, first of all, in the largest sense, which should be fairly obvious to us, but we need to continue to think of it and to deepen in our roots here. And that is that the church is the called out assembly of Christ called out of the world as the new exodus leaving this world, leaving Babylon, so to speak, and coming into the embrace of Christ as our Savior. We need to see ourselves in those terms to have that self-perception that I'm one who's been delivered from this world and its defilement. I'm now living in a new community in the new living temple as one of God's people. We follow a Christ, let's remember, who was crucified where? The New Testament makes much of the fact that He was crucified outside the camp. Picturing probably that sacrificial animal that was chased away from the camp of Israel to show that Israel's sin had been placed on that animal. That animal is driven into the wilderness. And so the analogy is made to Christ. Jesus was not popular. Jesus was killed outside the camp in loneliness and in separation from this world by those who hated Him and despised Him. If you're following Christ, that's who you're following. So we need to understand then, secondly, that we are called out of this world. Then our relationship to this world from which we've been delivered is a matter of loyalty to the Christ who has saved us, the One who was crucified outside the camp. Everything now, having been rescued from my sin, everything now is a matter of loyalty to Christ. It's not a matter of getting what I want satisfying my sensual pleasures, making sure people think of me what I want them to think of me, getting my way. It isn't that anymore at all. I've been called out of that dead temple, and now as the new and living temple, my whole orientation is loyalty to Jesus who saved me from it. And there's some of you, the joy on your face is saying, yes, I praise God I've been called to this. There may be others here who this is a major battle going on right now. You're struggling with the lure, the temptation of this world. Remember, this is all a matter of loyalty to Christ, but that's an incomplete thought. It's not only that everything in my life is loyalty to Christ in my orientation, but it is secondly the beauty of Christ that comes in here. It's not just God telling us from heaven, you be loyal to Jesus, He's my Son, and I want you to support Him. It's a loyalty to Christ that flows from a knowledge of the beauty of Christ. We sang of that today, didn't we? His beauty fills my eyes. There's an irresistible attraction to the wonder and to the beauty of Christ. And it's to that that I respond. He is the pristine temple in which there is perfect and full and complete fellowship. There is joy untold in a feast that never ends in the presence of Christ. that mental conception, that understanding of my place in this new narrative as the new and living temple is all very vital. But I think at this point, it really isn't very practical yet. How does this work itself out? I see myself in this new calling, delivered from this world, this matter of loyalty, the beauty of Christ. I see all of that. But what does it mean for my daily life? Well, for the Corinthians... It was fairly straightforward in the writings of Paul at least. It was avoid participation in the pagan temple. Don't go out to eat with your pagan friends at the temple and become part of the worship of a devil, of a demon. The world in which we live is not always so obvious. And I think the Corinthians struggled with the same things, but maybe particularly in a culture like ours that has been influenced by the Bible. We're not a Christian nation. We never were a Christian nation. But this nation has had significant influence from the Bible. And so in a nation like ours, there's some subtleties here that we have to learn to think through. The spirit of the age, the temple of the world, is filled with many delicious temptations as in Corinth, but many of them are far more subtle in our setting. This passage does not... Then how do we respond to this? This passage isn't saying, here's how you respond, everybody run away from the world. Find a monastery somewhere and hide. We are called to reach believers with the Gospel. Not to hide from them. First Corinthians 5, Paul says, if you had to get away from sinners, you'd have to take a spaceship and get out of here. You'd have to leave the world, he says. That's not his point. But we must come to terms then as those called with the authority of Christ to go into all the world and proclaim the Gospel to unbelievers. We've got to come to terms with what it means to enter into fellowship with the world, to eat at the world's table, to enter the temple from which we've been delivered. Such a thought should be as ugly to us as entering a temple with rats. As the new temple of God, we must stand apart in moral holiness, not find our fellowship with the world, but find it with Christ. Not by leaving the world, not by ignoring unbelievers, not by creating walls behind castles. We're to reach that world, but we're not to fellowship with it. The application of this reality is not always easy. But again, let me just take some unrelated shots out in the dark here and there at a few places to touch and say, what does that look like? Let me draw one picture. I think it is to leave behind and to separate ourselves from the sensual pleasure-seeking of our culture. If I could say it this way, and I'm just being pointed in one direction, there could be thousands. Jesus delivers us from the godless party scene in which minds and moral compasses are squashed by alcohol and drugs and in which fleshly passions are aroused by a barrage of sensual stimuli. From music the videos designed to stir sensual passions the gyrating bodies clad in sexually provocative clothing. That whole scene, you know it, you've seen it, you've perhaps been in it. It's to be left behind. There's nothing in that calibrated to bring glory to God and to cleanse and purify the believer. The light of Christ, the pursuit of holiness, is nowhere near such scenes. And in loyalty to Christ, it's something we should leave and not be part of, lest we become idolaters. Now that's one thing, but another is we can enter into that world without actually being in it and voyeuristically participate in such a scene on a screen. I'm not there, I'm not in the midst of it, but I'm enjoying it by what I'm watching. I'm entering into the scene, so to speak. We've got to watch what we're doing. And we have to decide where am I worshiping Christ and where am I enjoying the temple of this world. I remember being just simply at a bowling alley some time ago and there's screens there for reasons I don't know showing images on it that were purely nothing more than sensual attraction of sexual infidelity for anyone that claimed Christ as Savior. This is just at a bowling alley in the middle of the day. We have got to make decisions along these lines of what we're going to fellowship with and what we're going to say no to. It wasn't designed in any way to reflect the beauty of creation, but to draw people away from the law of God. What agreement has the temple of God with such idols and such images? I'm not trying to make it simplistic. It's not. But we've got to be thoughtful about what we're seeing and how we're entering into the central pleasures of this godless temple in which our culture resides. Let me take a wholly another angle. Number two, Jesus calls us to a view and practice of marriage that conforms to His revealed purposes. What that means then, to not be unequally yoked, I think we need to say fairly clearly in context, means that if you're not married, you should marry only a believer. Young people, those of you who are single that would desire to be married someday, should God permit that to be the case, need to make the decision that that's who it will be. So as not to be unequally yoked. What? partnership or portion does believers have with unbelievers. We've fought we've through that already. Putting those two together is putting light and darkness together. There's a whole orientation that's not shared. So as we come to a place of marriage, I mean, this is a little scary. For those of us who understand the new birth in Christ and what it means to embrace Jesus as Savior and to walk with Him, we just lopped off the vast majority of people we're going to know. They're not even a potential option. We've really narrowed down the field. But in loyalty to Christ, how else should we want it? Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And what yoke is more strong in this world relationally than marriage? But We need to move beyond that. We need to also understand that God's counsel is for lifelong fidelity. A couple asked that I would marry them some time ago. Came into my office. I explained to them lifelong fidelity according to the word of God, and they left and never came back. They were living together and they wanted to get married. But when they found out what marriage was, they didn't want any part of that. We as God's people need to leave behind the thoughts of this world that marriage exists to make me happy, and marriage exists to give me what I want. And if I'm not getting what I want and I'm not happy within marriage, then I just leave it. What we need to see are people that are committed to the purposes of God, the revealed Word of God concerning marriage and are willing to, to live within it to the glory of God even when it's hard. And taking it a step further, we need to listen to the Word of God concerning the proper ordering of husband-wife relationships. We will not be popular if we take what God's Word says about male-female relationships within the bond of marriage. That's not going to make anybody happy in this culture who is drinking from the world's well. But we look at this as a matter of loyalty to Christ and seeing the beauty in His design, and we're faithful husband and wife to fulfill the calling of God upon us. I'm going to skip some, but let me add a third. Jesus delivers us from the restlessness, from the restless impatience and dissatisfaction with the permanent that mars our world. I draw here from the works of Ken Myers. I'm thankful for them, and he's helped in many of these application points. But he writes that we inhabit a culture that is addicted to what is temporal and what is fast. He calls it the fleet and the fleeting. You live in that world, don't you? Everything's got to be trendy, recent, up-to-date, novel, and it has to move really quickly. So on the one hand, we're attracted like a bug to a light to whatever is new and trendy and the, the latest thing. And on the other hand, we want everything now. Four years is way too long for an education. Five minutes is way too long for dinner at a fast food restaurant, and five seconds is too long to wait for the web page to open up. I bet there's a few of you know what I mean. Five, You have become bored in five seconds. It's not quite there. It's time to go on to another one. And we'll work on three or four at a time if we need to, to just get it moving faster and faster and faster. Now, This is where I think Myers is perceptive here. He says, how easily a church can fall prey to the spirit of the age in designing worship services that are those two very things, trendy and fast. If the service doesn't move quickly, if the music is not noticeably upbeat and fast, if the theme of the sermons are not trendy and up-to-date, and if the sermon is long if anything in the service moves slowly or forces us to contemplate, if there's any dead air, if we're asked to give a lot of our time and we're made to think, that's bad. That's not good, we're told. Our worship, though, as we consider how we are distinct from our world, it may be grand and obvious things, it may be some of these more subtle areas. Our worship should not be, can we say, tainted by the world's emphasis on Madison Avenue glitz, on musical performance that magnifies performers and is packaged in the trendiest sounds and styles of a world whose message is innately anti-Christ. Our worship should orient toward bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. We're not claiming as a church that we're doing that or know how to do that necessarily, but we're aiming at it. We're striving toward it. Not toward the trendy and the fast, but toward what is permanent and what leads to the contemplation of God. There is a church. I, I absolutely assume the very best in everybody involved in the scene. But I visited this church, and they had a band playing on the front that could be indistinguishable from any band anywhere in this world. But it was interesting to me that what they did in the middle of that playing was that one member of the band stood forward to the very edge of the platform and played like the prominent spot for a while, then stood back and the next person came forward to the edge of the platform with the lights down on them and did their performance, and then the next and then the next. And I I assume that the motivations were absolutely pure that the point of that all was to say we are the body of Christ and various members of it and God has equipped us with unique gifts. And they're probably trying to visually demonstrate that by each person standing out into the limelight. But as I left, I had to really ask the question, is that an influence from God's Word and His Spirit? Or is that simply we are so overwhelmed with the sense that music is performance to glorify the person, that we're really imitating the world just in a a little bit of a twist to our own ways. We've got to be very cautious, particularly in the area of worship, because it is here that we focus our attention on the one true and living God. We should do so then not by being attuned to what is trendy and fast as our culture dictates, but toward how do we best contemplate God? How do we best meet in His presence? Now certainly in all of this we can add, and I'll just end with this so though we could go further, but Jesus calls us to separate ourselves from cooperation with religions that deny the exclusive claims of Christ to save. To not find fellowship there, but rather to come out from among those who say Jesus is not the way, the truth, and the life. Who deny that there is only one name under heaven by which we must be saved. Again, this is a growing trend even in churches that call themselves Christian. Maybe you're not aware of it, but there are Christian churches now across the land that are routinely moving into the, the readings of the, of the assembly Readings from the Buddha. Readings from the Quran, And readings that are seeking to find commonalities between Christ and other religions. I understand, again, if there's any good agenda in that. I understand that agenda. To say that there is a common grace of God and to say that it's not that uh, only Christians have ever spoken something that's worth hearing. But is the worship and the assembling of the church the place for us to emphasize the commonalities between the temple of the living God and the temple of Satan. There is a way of religion that looks to the self. And there's a way of religion that looks to Christ alone as the giver of salvation. The two cannot mix. and even Christians in name do not see this. One of the leading individuals in our community and one of the writings is constantly telling us as a Christian writer how salvation is found within. Look within to your deepest inner light and find there the answer to your salvation. This is a Christian teacher, Christian counselor. So it's not simply... Outside of the Christian faith, but even those who would claim to follow Christ, many times are looking for this fellowship between light and darkness. They're saying that we're all saved as we look to ourselves to pull ourselves up. We should separate from all of this. I am lost in sin, Christ alone is the Savior. Guiding people to look within for the inner light that everyone has within them is not Christianity. It's neo-paganism. And we should leave it behind. Not flirt with it. I might speak to some here and say, I don't get any of this. This just sounds like much ado about nothing. In fact, I'm feeling pretty uncomfortable here. I like my life the way it is and I don't get the sense that you do. Well, this isn't about me and it's not about my particular and unique twist on things but let me also say it's not that you will go to hell because you break this or that law of god you will break this or that law of god with no concern because you're going to hell you're a child of the wrong temple we all were the corinthians were every single person in this assembly that's come to saving faith in christ was as well What is very frightening is that you may be blind to the beauty of Christ. And the things in which you find joy and satisfaction momentarily, the fleet and the fleeting, the temporal that you give yourself to may be the very thing that's dragging you down and destroying you and keeping you blinded to the beauties of Christ. I don't think I'm any friend to say you're just okay the way that you are. Keep looking within for the inner light It's like you're in a temple with rats. And we're just saying to you as those who have been delivered from that same temple, come out. Come out and receive the beauty of Jesus Christ. Come to salvation in Him. You love the darkness rather than the light we all once did. But then the irresistible beauty of the light of Christ dawns upon us and we're born again. Today is that day of salvation. Chapter 6 and verse 2. Come to Christ. But for those of us who know Him, the bottom line is our loyalty to Him as we see Him in His beauty. And as 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10 says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. That's not judgment on the basis of works. That's judgment, I think, of ultimate reward and faithfulness. On that day, let me assure you, you will be happy for every inch of your life in which you made it clear that you were loyal to Jesus Christ. Let's separate ourselves from defilement. And let's think of our accountability before the Lord. And let's know in the depths of our soul where I'm attracted to sin and debauchery, it's because of a level of blindness. May God open our eyes. Let's bow for prayer. Father, I I trust that in no way, shape, or form would I come across as holier than anyone else or righteous in my own opinions and ideas. We need to chase these things, think about them. I've just wanted to lead this church to try to think and try to work through matters. We all need to be respectful, to be continuing to grow and learn. But I pray, God, that we would indeed stand together in faithfulness as the new living temple and seek to chase out the rats of sin and to live in pristine holiness before You, not as self-righteous people, but as people humbled by the grace of God. And I pray that You'd open our eyes to see the beauty of Christ. There are some perhaps here who are caught in sin. They're intoxicated with what this world is feeding them that's dragging them down and keeping them from You. I pray, God, that You'll open their eyes and help them to see. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.